God, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. We realize humbly that we would know nothing about you if you had not revealed yourself to us. So God, we, we treasure your words to us. They are good for us. They can make us wise unto salvation. They can grow us in maturity in Christ and make us complete, fully equipped for every good work. So, Father, we pray that you would please help us by your Spirit to understand your word better. We pray, Father, that you would give us understanding as we think together. And we pray that this time would be honoring to you and encouraging for your people here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome to the class. Today begins our class on the question, how did we get our Bible? Just a couple of housekeeping things before we get rolling. Uh, these classes are being recorded, and so if you would like a copy of it, or if you know of somebody who would like a copy of the classes, uh, you can sign up for them at the Welcome Center. And we're just going to use this, the sheet that we use for the sermon recordings. So if you would like a copy of the Sunday School specifically, uh, you can either write in Sunday School or SS and just put the date, and then we'll get you a copy of the recording of the class. Another thing to be aware of is that we are uh, we're doing some research and looking into possibly taking a trip as a group, whoever wants to go, to the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Out of curiosity, raise your hand if you've been to the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Okay, cool. Great. Uh, I'm going to be referencing the Museum of the Bible at different times in the class. I might be showing you pictures from there. If you're interested in going, take a look at the sign-up sheet at the Welcome Center. Now, signing up at the Welcome Center right now does not commit you to going. It's just letting me know you're interested. And so whoever's interested in, I'm going to be communicating with you further details about the trip. Before you sign up to see if you're interested, please read some of the details on that sign-up. They have information about when we might go and about costs and time that will be involved in going. Uh, but if you're interested in going, if you'd like to go, please check that sign-up out and go ahead and sign up for the class, or sign up if you're interested in going to that. Well, this is a unique class in some ways, uh, and so I want to give some introductory remarks that I hope will just kind of help us uh, be prepared uh, for what to expect and what we're doing in this class. So first of all, I want to talk about why we're having the class in this format. Um, as a church, we are committed to studying, understanding, and proclaiming the Bible. So one of our goals as a church, right, is to proclaim the whole counsel of God. This is why we're committed on Sunday mornings to expositional preaching at the heart of our services. And expositional preaching just means that we're making the, the text, the word of God, clear in our preaching. We as a church, we want to hear God's word proclaimed, explained, and applied. And therefore, we want to take time to consider how we got this book so that we can understand it better. Another reason for this class is that many of you over the years uh, have asked us questions about the Bible and about Bible translations. Uh, why are we committed as a church to the King James Version? Uh, what do we think about modern translations? Uh, what translations are best? Uh, we think that these are questions worth considering. These are questions uh, that the elders have been thinking about. Over the last year, in 2019, we read uh, Mark Ward's book called Authorized, The Use and Misuse of the King James Bible, and the 
the basic point of this book is just showing us the value of modern translations in modern English. Uh, if you're interested in a copy of this book, we have a few copies available uh, that you could come pick up after the class. We hope to address questions uh, like these throughout the class, and I'm sure many other questions as well. In many ways, this conversation about how we got the Bible is very basic and important, and we think it will be helpful for as many people as possible to be in the study and in on the conversation. So this format where we have the young adult class gathering with us and the youth group gathering with us, we hope that this allows as many people as possible to be in on the conversation. That's why we're recording uh, the class so that others can, can hear the teaching. Now I'm sure that I'm not gonna be able to address every question that might come up uh, due to time constraints or simply because I don't know the answer to every question. Um, but I want to encourage you, if you have a question about anything that we're talking about, if you think that there would be something that would be helpful if it were addressed as a class, uh, please come talk to me. Of course, we'll have times for questions in the class, but I'm sure we won't have as much time as we would all like. Uh, so feel free to approach me after class or after a service or sometime during the week. Um, and hopefully we can continue the conversation as a church. I want to talk about some of the goals for this class. Now, there are layers of goals for the class, but I've listed just a few of them in the handout. And by the way, there is a handout. If you didn't get one on the way in, there's handouts in the back. One of the goals for the class is that I hope that we can better understand all that God has done to give us his word. For many of us, including myself, there's never been a time when I haven't been hearing and reading the Bible. Right? It's been as basic to my life as the sun coming up in the morning or as eating food every day. Uh, but that's not true for most people around the world right now. And that's, that has not been true throughout history, that there has been such an availability of the word of God as we have. Uh, one of the most powerful displays at the Museum of the Bible is a room where they show you kind of the, the state of Bible translations throughout the world. And they show you parts of the Bible that are parts of the world that have the Bible in their language, parts of the world that have maybe a little bit of the Bible in their language. And they show how so much of the world doesn't have any part of scripture in their language. We are in some ways um, unique and we are certainly blessed by God to have the kind of access to God's word that we have at this time and in this country. And that in itself is worth reflecting on. How did that happen? So I hope that we can understand all that has happened, all that God has done to give us his word. And as we come to understand how we got the Bible, I hope that we come to treasure it more. God's word is an invaluable treasure. Even as we read in Psalm 19, God's word is better than money. God's word is sweeter than honey. And I hope that our estimation and appreciation of scripture rises throughout the class. I hope we praise God for the way he's, that he's preserved his word for us. I hope we appreciate all that our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world and through history have done so that we could have God's word. 
I hope we appreciate the variety of tools and translations that we have available to help us better understand God's word. So I hope that we come to treasure God's word more. Ultimately, I hope that we come to know God's love for us better and that we love him more through this study. There can be a danger in mistaking a knowledge of this book for a relationship with God. We, now, we can't have a relationship with God apart from this book, right? We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But knowledge of this book in itself does not constitute a relationship with God. Right? So uh, if you've heard some of, my series, uh, some of my sermons in the book of John, this is something that, that just kind of stands out to me when I read the book of John. How uh, Jesus' enemies were familiar with scripture, and yet they rejected him. They hated him. And Jesus, in his interactions with those religious leaders, often points this out, right? So you just start with John 3. Jesus is interacting with Nicodemus. And who is Nicodemus? Real question, who's Nicodemus? He's a Pharisee. He's a teacher of Israel, right? And Jesus tells him that if I'm trying to teach you heavenly things and you don't understand that, how are you going to understand if I'm trying to talk to you about earthly things? And so he rebukes Nicodemus for not understanding God's word appropriately. And then in John 5, he says something similar. He rebukes those who are trying to kill him because he says that he's one with the Father in John 5, 18. He says his Father works until now and I am working. And they try to kill him. And he says, don't you know the scriptures? Because they bear witness about me. He says, if you really understood Moses, you would understand me because Moses talks about me. And many of you know that, that I love books. Um, my wife and I celebrated our 11th anniversary, and she loves me, and so she took me to a bookstore this weekend. Um, and it's, it's this book, the Bible in particular, um, that I have devoted my life to. From the time I was a young boy, this book, the Bible, has captured my heart and my mind. I've devoted my academic and professional life to studying and teaching this book. But I must constantly guard my heart from a mere academic or professional approach to this book. As Pastor John likes to say, we must guard our heart from approaching this book as religious robots. There's danger in that. We must, all of us, must come to this book as a, as a hungry beggar coming for food. We must come as a, a desperate drowning swimmer coming for a life preserver or as a child depending on their father. So we don't worship this book, right? We worship the God who wrote it. And so I hope that we don't merely come closer to the book but I hope that we grow closer to the author of the book. So those are some of the, the goals for the class, that we understand how we got God's word, that we would treasure it, and that we would know God's love for us, and that we would love him more through this study. Jordan Peterson is a psychologist, an author. Uh, he's something of a modern-day philosopher, and he's become quite a popular speaker over the last several years. His YouTube channel's got millions of followers. 
Um, he's got a very famous podcast. He wrote a book called The 12 Rules for Life, uh, and it's a best-selling book. Uh, he has, it, what's interesting about Jordan Peterson is that he has a great appreciation for Christianity, and he has a high view of the Bible, but he doesn't believe it. He is, he's not a Christian. He doesn't believe in the inspiration of scripture the way that we do and the ways we're about to talk about. And he says this, this is fascinating, again, because he has a high view of scripture, but he, he doesn't think that it's divine in the way that we do. In respect to the Bible, he said this, he said, it's a mystery, this book, how it was made, why it was made, why we preserved it, why it happened to motivate an entire culture for 2,000 years and transform the world. What's going on? How did that happen? It is by no means obvious. Well, while it might not be obvious, and while there is absolutely mystery involved in how this book came to us, we can answer many of these kinds of questions that he's asking and come to a solid understanding of this book. And so I, I think that the questions that he's asking well summarize what we're trying to attempt to answer in this class. So here's, here's just kind of a broad outline for the class uh, as we move forward. This, this class is going to go for the next three months. So this is a, a broad outline. We're trying to answer the question, how did we get our Bibles? And we're going to try to answer that question first uh, biblically and theologically. So that is to say that I, I want us to first see what the Bible says about itself. And then how do we summarize what the Bible says about itself? And then second, we're going to, to answer that question within the story of the Bible itself. Um, and I'm, I'm excited about that part because it's fascinating that the Bible tells us a lot about how it came to be. And so we're just going to look through the story of the Bible to see how it tells us that the Bible was written. And then the third way that we're going to answer the question, how do we get our Bible, is to look through church history. So a large answer to the question of, of how we got our Bible lies there in church history. And so we'll spend a significant amount of time here. So that's the, the, the broad outline and plan for the class moving forward. And today, we're going to start in on answering this question biblically and theologically. So, in, in this area, when we're looking at answering the question biblically and theologically, we're asking the question, what does the Bible say for itself? What does the Bible teach us about itself? One place that we're going to, to start to look at how we summarize what the Bible says for itself theologically is to look at our statement of faith. So, if, if you have your handout, uh, I have printed Article 1 of our statement of faith. Uh, they're near the top of the page. And our statement of faith uh, summarizes this well. It says, We believe the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the verbally inspired Word of God, the final authority for faith and life, inerrant in the original writings, infallible and God-breathed. And then, for our benefit, several scripture verses are then provided, and we're going to be looking at those. If you need a copy of the handout, 
raise your hand and some of our brothers are, are passing them out for you. So just keep your hand up until you get one. So there, you've, you've seen in our statement of faith, there's a lot packed into that statement. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time this morning and on into next week is, is unpack several of uh, elements that we see in that statement. So we're going to start by focusing our attention on the inspiration of Scripture. Now, the doctrine of inspiration means that the Bible is a divine book with God as the author. So that the Bible is written by God in such a way that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And so right away, we can see this book is unlike any other book. This is not like uh, any other book that has ever been written in this fundamental way, that God is the author. And this is the plain claim of Scripture from the front to the back, right? So Scripture presents itself as God's Word. There's lots of ways that we don't have time to get into and that are all beneficial to show that Scripture is inspired. And the first way that I want to show us that Scripture is inspired is that this is simply the way that Scripture presents itself. Scripture presents itself to us over and over again consistently to be the very words of God. So, for instance, Genesis 1 begins with knowledge that only God could have about the very beginning of everything when only he existed. There was no one there to write that down and say, God said this, and then this happened. Nobody saw that happened. This is knowledge that only God could have. And so the book clearly begins being told from God's perspective, and it's presenting itself to us as divine revelation. And then, of course, there are lots of passages, like in Exodus 20, verse 1, that say simply, God spake all these words, saying, and then proceeds to give us the Ten Commandments. And so that chapter in particular says these are God's words. God spoke this. That refrain, thus says the Lord, occurs some 359 times in Scripture. So it's especially in the Old Testament and the prophets. They're presenting themselves as speaking God's words. They're not saying, here's what I think. They're saying, this is what God thinks. This is what God says. And then Jesus, when he shows up, he speaks similarly. And Jesus does two things in, in slightly different contexts. Sometimes, like in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks on his own authority. He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. He's, a, he's appealing to his own authority. And we see consistently in the Gospels that people are amazed at Jesus' teaching because he's speaking like he's got unique authority. Or to put it another way, he's speaking as if he were God. So Jesus speaks on his own authority, but then Jesus could also say in passages like John 12, verse 49, he says, I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. So here, Jesus is claiming to speak the words God gave him, the message that God gave him. And then before he departed, he told his disciples in John 16 that the spirit of truth 
would come to them, that Jesus would send the spirit of truth, and that the spirit would remind them of what Jesus said and guide them into all truth. So Jesus here, he's passing on his authoritative teaching to his apostles who would be led by the spirit. And then many of them went on to write the New Testament. And they were self-consciously aware of what they were doing when they were writing. So we read from passages like 1 Thessalonians 2.13, where Paul says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard from us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. So Paul understood that the things that he was writing were God's words. All of this, just to say, is just a quick survey to say that Scripture just presents itself as God's word and is speaking with God's authority. So just as a quick evangelistic or apologetic aside, you know, whenever we're talking with somebody about the Bible— And if they have some kind of regard or respect for the Bible, we can take the opportunity to point out to them that this is not merely a a holy book among many. This is not merely a good book. This is not merely a helpful book. The Bible doesn't present itself as just merely being useful. The Bible presents itself as being God's word, as being from God himself in a unique way. So this is kind of analogous to when people came to Jesus and called him good teacher. And he says, why do you call me good? There's only one who's good. And so we want to point people to these, these radical claims that the Bible makes for itself. The Bible consistently presents itself not just as a good book or as a wise book, but as God's book. And we'll talk about some of the implications for that in just a moment. So one way of understanding that the Bible is inspired, that it's from God, is just the way it presents itself. Another way is the way the Bible explains itself. Okay, so just a couple passages to think about here. One is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, that says... Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Right, so Peter teaches that scripture isn't like any other book, because this book was written by men who were moved by the Holy Ghost. And we'll talk more about what that involves, what it means to be moved by the Holy Ghost in a moment. But for now, we just simply want to note that the apostle here explains that Scripture originates with God, that God is over it and superintending it, that it's coming from him. Another important passage that you'll probably be familiar with is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. This is uh, familiar to us. It says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, 
thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now there's, there's a lot here, and I just want to draw our attention to a couple of words in these verses. First is that word for scripture. He says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word for scripture in the Greek is, is the word graphe, which is a technical term in the New Testament for the Bible, for what we would call the Bible. So that word is used 51 times in the New Testament, and 49 of those times, it's talking about the Old Testament. So it would say, like, as the scriptures say, and then it would quote the Old Testament. So 49 of the 51 times, it's talking about the Old Testament. And then two of those times, it's talking about the Old and the New Testament. So that is that's something of a, of a technical term. Those two times in the New, in the New Testament that the word graphe or scripture refers to both testaments is in 1 Timothy 5.18, which quotes the Old Testament and it also quotes Luke 10. And in 2 Peter 3.16, where Peter says that some of Paul's writings are hard to understand and they're being twisted by some like they do the other scriptures. So that's what the word scripture uh, is uh, referencing there. And the, Paul says that scripture, that that is given by inspiration of God. So Paul is saying that these, these writings, this scripture, is given by inspiration, that they're inspired. Now, we use that word today to refer to all sorts of things, right? It's kind of like the word for love. Uh, we use it to refer to all sorts of things. So we might say that a musical performance was inspired, right? Or that that, that, that artist was inspired. And when we say that, uh, we're referring to the superior quality of, of something. But the Greek word here uh, is, is different. It's the word theopneustos, which means breathed out by God, breathed out by God. In other words, the Bible comes from God's mouth. Uh, theologian J.I. Packer says that theopneustos means outbreathed rather than inbreathed by God. It means divinely expired rather than inspired. So all this to say that scripture comes out from God's mouth. So the New International Version translates this word inspired helpfully when it says that scripture is God-breathed, okay? God-breathed, and that phrase, God-breathed, is also in our statement of faith. Our statement of faith uses that same expression of God-breathed to communicate the doctrine of inspiration. And this is also what Jesus means. He's saying it in a different way. In Matthew 4, 4, when he says that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, right? He's quoting Deuteronomy there. and He's talking about how God's word proceeds from his mouth. That's another way of describing inspiration. So scripture presents itself consistently as God's word, and scripture explains itself as the word of God. Now, this has many <clears throat> implications for our lives, and, and uh, hopefully, you know, we'll be talking about all that this means throughout the class. But one of the most basic implications of the doctrine of inspiration is that God's word is authoritative. God's word is authoritative. So our statement of faith says that scripture is the final authority for faith and life. This means that we need to approach scripture with humility and submission. 
even as we would approach God in humility and submission, because this is God's word to us. And because God's thoughts and ways are not our thoughts and ways, this means that we will, more often than not, find this book rubbing us the wrong way. This book will make us feel uncomfortable. And in fact, if we read the book and only ever find that it, it agrees with what we already think, well, then we're probably not reading it rightly. This book ought to shape us and form us. So, for example, uh, in my morning readings, I've been reading through the book of Jeremiah. And sometimes the way we approach that specific book is to kind of parachute into chapter 29, verse 11, and talk about how God has good plans for us, not to do us harm, but to do us good. Well, the main thrust of the book of Jeremiah is hard. The main thrust of that book is woe and judgment. In Jeremiah 14, 11, this stood out to me as I was reading. He said, God says to Jeremiah, do not pray for the well-being of this people. That's hard to hear. We're not going to crochet that onto a pillow. It seems harsh and unloving. On the other hand, all the way on the other spectrum, you know, there are radical commands to love people in ways that make us very uncomfortable. Jesus tells us to love our enemies. He tells us to forgive always, not, not seven times, not 70 times, 70 times seven, all the time. He says, if somebody slaps you on the cheek, give them your other cheek. He says, if they take your cloak, give them your tunic. If they ask you to go one mile, go two. That stuff is, is hard for us to apply. It's hard for us to hear, especially when we're thinking about our enemies. So scripture presents us with God's thoughts and God's ways that ought to shape us. Scripture is God speaking to us. And we have to conform our views and our preferences and our morals to God's word, not the other way around. So a basic implication and application of the inspiration of scripture is that it is authoritative over us. I'm going to talk about one more uh, element of the doctrine of inspiration that's on the back of your handout. And Lord willing, if we have time, I'll pause for any questions that you might have. On the back of that handout, it talks about another angle of the doctrine of inspiration. The doctrine of inspiration acknowledges and affirms the involvement of human authors. Right? So God didn't drop the Bible down out of heaven. Um, and you know, it's kind of like Mormonism. If you know anything about the story of Mormonism, that there's an idea that an angel showed up and told Joseph Smith, like, there's these golden tablets written in ancient Egyptian, and go dig over here and you'll find them, and God will mystically enable you to translate these ancient documents. Well, the Bible didn't come to us like that. God used a variety of mechanisms in the process of inspiration, some of which we can't easily explain, right? And so here's where we need to leave some room for mystery in how exactly the process of inspiration happened. We know that inspiration happened as the Holy Spirit carried people along and moved people along, but we don't know exactly all the time what that meant. Hebrews 1 
1 says that God spoke at sundry times and in diverse manners. So sometimes God came to someone and said, write this down, right? So Exodus 19.6 says, write this down. So we can expect that in cases like that, you know, the, the human author is listening to God and writing down what God says. But even when that happens, you know, we shouldn't imagine that God overrode the human agent in such a way that that person stopped being human and it was just kind of like a machine for God. But one way that God inspired scripture was by telling people, write this down. We also know, for instance, uh, when Luke wrote Luke and Acts, Luke opens his gospel telling us that he, he made himself well acquainted with these stories. You know, so Luke is going around uh, interviewing people, getting to know people, asking them questions, doing research, we might say, so that he could make a well-documented account of the life of Jesus and the apostles uh, for Theophilus. And then in another passage, a very interesting passage in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 40, Paul says that he's writing, you know, he's giving instruction for married people and for single people. And then he says in chapter 7, verse 40, that he's writing according to my judgment, and I think also that I have the Spirit of God. That's a, a very interesting expression that Paul uses to describe his understanding of what he's doing when he's writing. Paul can say at the same time that he's using his judgment, but that he believes that his judgment is being directed by God's Spirit. So we understand, and those are just some examples, right? We understand that, that Scripture was written by people who were, who were using their mind and their unique styles, all the while being superintended by the Spirit of God in such a way that what they wrote were the very words God wanted to be written. So God used normal humans with all their, their personality and style. And we see that in Scripture, right? God used a variety of, of literary styles, in scripture. So sometimes we have narratives, sometimes we have poetry and letters, sometimes apocalyptic and other kinds of, of literature. And different parts of the Bible sound different from one another, even within the same style, right? So Ezekiel sounds very different than Jeremiah. John writes very differently than Matthew. And Peter writes quite differently than Paul. Right? You can see in those writings their unique style and sometimes even their personality coming through in what's being written. And God used normal human language to record scripture. God didn't teach humans a divine language, right? We, there is no divine language that we have to learn. Uh, he didn't give a special grammar or vocabulary. God didn't use a specialized form of Hebrew, an Aramaic, and Greek, those are the texts, those are the, the languages that the original documents were written in. We'll talk more about that in future classes. You know, so the, the Hebrew Old Testament, for instance, was written over hundreds of years, from Moses all the way to the prophets, and the return from exile. And you can see the language naturally changing over that time, reflecting what's going on in the life of the people. So the later you get in Israel's story, the more you can see the influence of Aramaic on the Hebrew language, because God's people were around Aramaic speakers. And there are two parts of the Old Testament in particular written in Aramaic. Um, we talked about this even in recent Sunday school classes. There are parts of, of Daniel and Ezra 
that are written in Aramaic because they are living with Aramaic speakers. The Greek of the New Testament was the common language at the time. You know, there, there was a, a time a couple hundred years ago when scholars thought that the New Testament was written in a unique kind of Greek, a, a high form of Greek. But then archaeologists discovered a lot of Greek documents that were for everyday usage, you know, like grocery shopping lists or, or just different kinds of documents written in ancient Greek. And they realized that the kind of Greek that the New Testament authors are using was not a classical, refined form of Greek. It was a common, everyday kind of Greek. We, we call it, if you've ever heard this term before, Koine Greek. That word Koine just means common. It was common Greek that was being used. So, the, the human authorship of Scripture is hugely encouraging for us because it means that human language is no barrier to knowing God, right? You, you don't have to learn a special language to know what God has said. You don't have to learn a celestial language. And even my understanding of, of Islam is that if you really want to know what God said, that you've got to back up to the Arabic and that translations of the Quran out of Arabic and into English are something less quality. Well, we, we understand we can have God's word in our language because God inspired scripture in the normal language of his people that fit their time and their place, whether that language was Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek. So now I will pause. Uh, we do have a little bit of time uh, for questions. So um, does anybody have any questions or thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, there's lots of connections. When we go from the old to the new, we'll talk a little bit about those connections. But yeah, it's fascinating, right? So Matthew starts off with the genealogy, connecting us back. Uh, John's gospel starts back at the beginning, talking about the beginning of things. So there's a, there is an organic connection between the old and the new. And that's one of the implications of God being the author, right? There are many, many human authors. But there's one divine author. And so there's a great unity in the text. Maybe one more question or comment? Yes, Bob. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk about this. You know, there, there are quotes from the, the 400s where uh, Augustine, if you've ever heard of Augustine, 
you know, he's writing and, and he knows that there are differences in the manuscripts of scripture that he has. And he talks about how he sorts through those differences. So when we talk about in the statement of faith, uh, we're going to talk about this more specifically next week. When we talk about inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility, all those things, they most properly apply to the original manuscripts, which we don't have. But we have, and we'll, this is a long conversation that we're going to talk about, but we are confident that we know what God said in 99.9% of cases. And so we can be confident that inasmuch as our Bibles reflect what was originally written, they have all those same qualities of being inspired and errant and infallible. And so that's a good way to segue into what we're going to be talking about next week. At the very bottom of the handout, you can see what's coming up. We're going to talk next week about verbal inspiration, uh, that the words of Scripture are inspired. We're going to talk about inerrancy and infallibility and what that means. We're going to talk about those original writings. And we're going to talk about preservation. So that's kind of where we're going. Again, trying to just give some biblical and theological answers uh, to the question of how did we get our Bible. Um, so the most basic answer that we're starting with, how did we get our Bible? We got our Bibles from God. And we've seen that God used humans in that process of giving us scripture. I'm going to conclude by reading from Psalm 119. And then I'll, I'll pray and we'll be dismissed. Psalm 119 verses 1 and 2 says... Blessed are the undefiled in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart. Father, we pray that you would help us to follow you with your whole heart and to receive your word with humility this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.